There's a reason to ban books right now. There's a reason to talk about immigration right now. There's a reason around voting rights. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. There's a reason white Christian nationalism is doing what it's doing, because at the heart of it for the white Christian nationalists is idolatry. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the notion, the idol of whiteness that they are worshiping. Dr. Eddie Gloud Jr. is a leading scholar and sought after commentator with deep expertise on our nation's politics, religion, and the African-American experience. His essential books include Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for today. I've wanted to have Dr. Gloud on this show for a long time, and you'll understand why after you listen to this week's conversation. As we celebrate the 18th anniversary of the State of Belief, I want to make sure you are subscribed to the next generation of the State of Belief podcast. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You'll hear this conversation in full, as well as recent interviews with Sharon Salzberg, Rain Wilson, Bishop William Barber, Congressman Jamie Raskin, Rabbi Sharon Browse, Imam Abdullah Antepli, and many, many others. It would really help to have you subscribe, rate, and tell people you're close to all about what you're hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show going is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. Eddie S. Gloud Jr. is a leading American scholar, a popular commentator, and the best-selling author of books including Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, and Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Today, which was the winner of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Book Prize. Dr. Gloud is James S. McDonald, Distinguished University Professor at Princeton University and former chair of the Department of African American Studies there. He is also former president of the American Academy of Religion. Eddie, welcome to the State of Belief. Oh, my God. It's a pleasure to be with you, Paul. My goodness. I am thinking back to uh, the time I was lucky enough to spend at Princeton. I feel very fortunate. It reminds me of my days at Union when I was like, I'm here with James Washington, James Cone, Beverly Harrison, these amazing towering figures. And I felt the same way with the religion department at Princeton. At the time, we had Al Rabito, Cornell West was there, these just extraordinary people. And then Judith Weisenfeld came later and Wallace Best. And then we had you, who was amazing and one of my favorite people to talk to and, and listen to and learn from. It, we, it felt like we were able to have deep, important discussions that nourish the soul and the mind at the same time. So yeah, it's, it's great to be with you. Indeed, Paul. I, I was just literally talking about you not too long ago uh, at the graduate school um, at the high table at Princeton. And I was uh, reflecting on a, a moment in my, in my career when you told me that you were packing up the books of, of, of Richard Rorty and, you know, who's, you know, family, I mean, as, as much as we could say, and, and you, you, you grace me with this amazing compliment that he had been reading in a shade of blue. And no, that's really important. I was very fortunate to know um, my cousin, Dick Rorty, who um, was a uh, just a, a, a very important figure in, you know, American kind of letters and also just a, a really good guy. I put out a, a 100th anniversary of um, my great grandfather's book, uh, Christianity and the Social Crisis, Christianity and the Social Crisis for the 21st Century. And I, and I asked Dick Rorty to write uh, the afterword. 
And I was like checking in with him and said, ah, Paul, you know, unfortunately I have pancreatic cancer and, you know, things aren't going well. And, and so, but he did it. He wrote the afterward and it's so beautiful. And he thanked me for being able to do it. And, and he, you know, he died not too long afterwards. And, and I, I, I feel fortunate that my life intersected with him. But one of the great things was that, you know, Dick Rorty was, you know, a colleague of Dr. Yeah. Cloud here and also um, Cornell and, and, and taught at Princeton for a time. Yeah. And when I went to kind of be there for the memorial service and, and kind of help help with the, the family, I come in and like the first book I see is Eddie Cloud's book. It showed like he was learning until the very end. You know, exactly. I mean, really, like he cared. Yeah. He cared. And so, you know, <laughs> this is part of the conversation. Eddie Cloud is like, he intersects with so many strains of thought, one of which is right. pragmatism and right. one of the, which is like that, that important part of American philosophy that is about like, what can we do with what we have now? Um, and it's a, it's a really, we can, I, I look forward to talking about that soon. Sure. I want to just start out by saying like, you are, you're in the public eye, you're thinking about our democracy, you're putting out ideas how does this feel personally? Like, we're going to get to American democracy. But I think all of us, it's worthwhile checking in. And, like, how is this affecting us as, like, human beings in the mix? Because, you know, my guess is, especially for someone like you who's very much in the public eye, you have to be intentional about caring for yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question to start our conversation. You know, I mean, I have to admit I'm not quite right. You know, I lost two friends in COVID, uh, two very close friends. Um, and, you know, being locked up in the house and seeing everyone struggle and having to comment every single day on the current state of affairs and, you know, how bitter and vitriolic the discourse is, um, having to keep track of the ugliness and the mean spiritedness, it can infect. It can infect the spirit. You know, uh, it can get. It can become a bit much, and so I think it's important for us to all kind of admit that we're not quite right. That there's a kind of creeping madness to it all, and you know, you can't just move beyond the million plus people dead. And we didn't have any. You know, think about it, Paul. I mean, there weren't proper rituals. You know. People died without sitting, you know, people couldn't sit Shiva. Folks couldn't have wakes. People couldn't sit beside their family member as they were going home. Uh, the family gatherings afterwards to break bread in order That's to right. kind That's of right. think about what it means for a person to transition from here to there. So those rituals that are really important for kind of healing, they weren't there. And then we just moved straight back into consumption, straight back into the kind of political, you know, mess that we're in. And so I think there is a kind of, uh, for myself, um, I'm not quite right. And I'm trying to write myself back into, you know, some sense of, of uh, stability, I suppose. Stability is not the quite right word, but I think to get my feet under me again. And so I think I'm trying to do that on the page, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. And this is not helped by those who kind of very quickly went to denying that COVID was a real thing. And gaslighting is almost too polite of a word for it. It's erasure. Right. It's a, an erasure of the grief. You having to fight for the fact that I lost people. I'm I'm mourning people. And you're saying this is like doesn't even exist. And you're politicizing something that just is just a, I appreciate you bringing that in because I'm guilty of it too. I'm kind of like, okay, COVID passed, even though we're all still dealing with COVID. And of course, in that time, you, people were absolutely devastated. And then on top of that, you had the, the brutal murder of George Floyd and all these things compounded, compounded, compounded. And then the attack on our capital. I, I do you have any personal wisdom. <laughs> I'm sorry to do this to you because you're like, you're, you're in the religion department or, or, or partly in the religion. You should, you should know about how to We're all, give us that wisdom that we can all heal ourselves right now. But like for yourself, even like, is there something that you try to do, whether that's reading or it's what, what is it that helps you feel right in these moments so that you can continue to take the next step? 
Well, you know, I think at, at, at some point it would, it required, required that I be still, hmm. right. And grapple with what was happening and what had happened, you know, because the pace of our society is such that, you know, you're always forward looking, you're always thinking about the next thing you're in the mix, right. We're at, you know, there's a surface reading. We, we live on the surfaces and hmm. we rarely kind of sit down and settle down in the long form. And here I'm talking about writing news and the, re- and, and the like, so what does it mean to be still and grapple with uh, the fact of loss? What does it mean uh, to, to quiet uh, uh, yourself and really take in so that you can take heed, you know, mm. take in what's happening so that you can take heed of what's happening to you, right? And then be able to generate the, 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 the right response or not the right response, but the, maybe a response that, can approximate the gravity of what you're experiencing, you know? Um, There is something, I mean, Cornel West used to say to us all the time that America was a death dodging civilization. Mm. And we have to think about, you know, the layered anniversaries of death that are happening. Mm. I mean, every year since COVID, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people are grieving the fact that Someone they love, the mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a friend, um, an aunt, they're not there anymore. And they're having to do that in the context of not only the political turmoil, uh, not only protests around cop killings, but mass shootings. You think about all the mass shootings we've had since COVID. So so I think it's really important to understand that the current chaos of our politics is actually a reflection of a creeping madness that's threatening to overwhelm and overrun the soul because we just haven't dealt with our loss yet in any substantive way you know Um, and the absence of ritual national ritual uh, to recognize it you know and to deal Mm. with it exacerbates the problem it's just so uh, thank you so much for saying all of that. I mean, I, I'm going to turn to James Baldwin because that's sure. someone who you spent a lot of time with. But that's not changing the subject. That's going back no. into that subject because, you know, I, I remember when I was 16 and I read Another Country and it w- and and I didn't even know what I was starting to read when I read it. I was like, huh, this is interesting. And I kept turning the page and turning the page. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, first it was the first it was the first gay thing I had ever read. I had right. not, you know, I, I, and I didn't even know it was any of that was in there. Yeah. And I just kept on turning the page. And then I was like, oh, and I'm going deep into an experience of what it is to live as a black person in the right. world, you know, through this incredible writing. Right. And 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 being transported and really like deeply, um, it changed the way. Like it, you know, it's one of those I, many many moments of my life that have help me expand that really changed me and uh and i do think that you know one of the gifts of fiction one you know one of the gifts and fiction sounds like a little you know little word but it's like one of the gifts of these these stories is that they help us slow down and see ourselves and see like see you know see a way of understanding that um sometimes helps us be seen, feel seen, but also sometimes help us see. And I, I just, I'd love for you to tell, tell our listeners about your kind of history with uh, James Baldwin before you started reflecting on his um, great contributions to American life. How, how did you encounter James Baldwin? Oh my God. I was so afraid of Baldwin. You know, uh, there was something too close uh, when I read him, you know, there is, you know, as I, as I, as I wrote in begin, uh, begin again, I, you know, I preferred my Ellison, you know, Ellison, mm. you know, Ralph Ellison, the author of Invisible Man, you right. know, and Shadow and Act and Going to the Territory. Ellison had his suit. He wore his mask perfectly. There was mm. philosophical sophistication as well as literary complexity, right, with him. Baldwin, Baldwin cut to the core, to the bone, to the marrow of the bone. And more importantly for me, it was his um, his struggles with his father, and you know those struggles felt too familiar. They were close, mm-hmm. and I wasn't quite mature enough 
as a young man um, at Morehouse College in the 80s um, and growing up in Mississippi, I wasn't mature enough to grapple with what Baldwin was asking of me. Mm. So I evaded him until graduate school. And even in, even then in graduate school, I decided to write on Ellison instead of Baldwin. And all of my colleagues were writing on Baldwin at the time. It wasn't until I got to my first job at Bowdoin College in Maine, and I was teaching a version of Cornell's Introduction to African-American Cultural Practices, my own adaptation of that course. And I would follow, I would teach Toni Morrison's Beloved, and right after Beloved, I would teach The Fire Next Time. Mm. And mm. Baldwin was speaking to me in a different way at that moment when I was trying to convey the ideas to the students um, suddenly he was getting in my bloodstream. Mm. And then when I returned to Princeton, I team taught a course with Cornell West on the African-American intellectual tradition. And we taught Fire Next Time and No Name in the Street. Mm. And then I taught a course with Jeffrey Stout on Baldwin and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh my goodness. So suddenly. Jeff, you know, Cornell West, I think is a more familiar name, but Jeff Stout is also a legendary name in the religion. I mean, so these are, these are great ways to like grapple with something, which is to teach something. People forget like teachers are grappling with things as they're teaching. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of like, like, like preachers, same thing, grappling as you're preaching. So this Absolutely. isn't like you got it all set and then you're conveying it. It's like grappling, saying it out loud. And so this, this is, I mean, this is fascinating to me. And I love the fact that it's like, there are, there's a, you know, that, that some, some voices, we may not be ready for them in a moment, but then our soul has to evolve in, into a place, you know, where you're ready for it. And I think that's a, that's also a beautiful lesson, but it's interesting yeah. that, that, that Baldwin wasn't going to let you go. <laughs> no, no. You know, I mean, you know, every great poet in the Emerson sense of the word, right. is going to unsettle. Every mm. great artist is going to force a confrontation with yourself. Right. Right. And so reading Baldwin, you know, I, you know, I had read Go Tell It on the Mountain and, you know, read Giovanni's Room, but I didn't really, I wasn't really ready for it. Yeah. You know, I, but when I read The Fire Next Time as a, as a professor, suddenly I, I, I got a language for my rage. Mm. It gave me a language for this anger that was in me that had been deposited in me by the anger from my father, uh, by the, by, by growing up in Mississippi. Yeah. But then that rage came with the language of love. So, so Baldwin allowed me to be yes. rageful and loving at the same time. And so the work, he became this muse. So my scholarship post, say my first book, Baldwin was always in right. the background. So if you read, for example, In a Shade of Blue, a book that I had written while I was working right. uh, with Tavis Smiley and the, and the Covenant with Black America, the epigraph to every uh -huh. chapter, Paul, uh -huh. except for the last one, comes from Baldwin. So I'm thinking about pragmatism. I'm thinking about African-American politics yeah. with Baldwin in yeah. that early book that came out in 2007. In 2007. And so yeah. he was everywhere. Um, unsettling all the, the sediment that had settled into the bottom of the ocean. That is me as it were. It's just, it's so exciting to hear you talk about that. And one thing that Baldwin presents, I think, you know, especially to the black reader, but also to, you know, someone who's cares deeply about religion is that he's like, okay, um, black religion. I, I have some questions. Yeah. Don't you think? I mean, Baldwin presents oh, that, you know, and absolutely. so, and, and I think that that's actually invites it invites the reader to reflect with Baldwin. It's you know, there's almost like I think Baldwin is similar to some other folks um, who might be like somehow in the LGBT world. They actually have higher aspirations for the church than the people in the church themselves. Right. <laughs> you know, they kind of like want you to be better <laughs> and right. want us, you know, to right. be like to kind of, you know. So he, he asked some really interesting questions. So I'm curious, like, as you think about Baldwin and you think about 
you know, the state of religion in America. I mean, the, the, the tagline for this this podcast is where religion and democracy meet. And so right. the question of like Baldwin and religion and democracy in America, what what can Baldwin tell us about this moment we're in now? Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, Baldwin is engaged in this ongoing critique of the way in which American Christianity has in so many ways compromised itself vis-a-vis the idols of race, right? Um, The way in which it has turned its back on the fullness of what it means to be a human being, a fleshified human being, Mm. right? Mm. And so here you have this young man, as he describes it in The Fire Next Time, and as he makes it, uh, you know, he renders it in fiction and go tell it on the mountain, who's trying to come to terms with his own sense of desire, his own body, uh, and he reached in the context of 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 a of, of very poor set of material conditions, right? And uh, so he he retreats into the church, and there he seeks comfort. But what does he find there? Right? He finds um, you know um, hypocrisy. He finds um, the world and all of its contradictions evidencing itself. Right in the very ways in which people interpret the gospel, in the very ways in which they understand Jesus's love, right? And you know he has that he has that wonderful line in the fire next time. If God doesn't make you more expansive and loving, then it's time we got rid of it, mm. right? Mm. Or he, you know, then it's time we got rid of it, right? Or he, you know, you hear these moments where, you know, he's you know he's in a Pentecostal environment, and, you know, the, the the authoritarian dimensions of of this experience where, you know, people are being, friends are being kicked out of, of the community for, for so-called offenses in the world and, and how those same friends are then lost to the world. Right. Right. A kind of un, uncaring and unsparing, um, you know, uh, pronouncement of faith and conviction as it were. Mm. And so there's a relentless critique of not only the hypocrisy of the church, right. But in some ways, the unloving nature of the church and the black church, which he which he talks about as, you know, black America's first theater, its importance, its 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 critical role. It, too, in some ways, mirrors that world. Mm. And but Baldwin never stops being the the preacher, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's always he's you know, he's always. You know, when he when he at the end of his life, when he says, Paul, that, you know, we should do our first works over, he cited revelations at that moment. Right. Absolutely. It was a language for him, uh, you know, like it is for many of us. It's a you know, it's a way of understanding how we relate to the world and uh, and and this inherent um, disappointment for not being what it should should and can and and must be in the world and i'm not like pointing fingers at anyone i'm like pointing them at me and and all of us who who claim this tradition um you, your your book is titled begin again james baldwin's america and its urgent lessons for today right okay just lay on us a couple of those lessons like right now i i really feel like um so many of us you know as you say we're reeling we're trying to get our feet under us. What are some lessons from your exploration of James Baldwin's America that it's important for me and for our listeners to hear right now? Well, you know, one of the things I was trying to do with the book is to grapple with my own creeping pessimism. Mm -hmm. I just watched all of these young people risk everything in the Black Lives Matter movement to, to... Force the nation to confront its 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 present um, and its past, and then the nation vomited up Donald Trump. And I just kept thinking about these young people who have risked everything. And I was teaching Baldwin seminar during the election of Donald Trump. My seminar on Baldwin. I was teaching all of his nonfiction, and I was, and I knew this, but it came to came to my attention in a different way because of the context. Baldwin had to grapple with the country betraying mm-hmm. its promise in his mm-hmm. own time. And so I kept dealing with the question. I had, to de- I had to grapple with the question. Well, how do you not only survive this place in light of its choices, right? 
how do you still stay committed to it mm-hmm. in light of its repeated betrayal of, of you and people like you? And so Baldwin gave me lessons. You know, he says, and I got the title from the book from, from his last novel, Just Above My Head. You know, he says, responsibility mm-hmm. isn't lost. Responsibility is abdicated. And if one refuses abdication, then one begins again. And so the task here, right, is not to kind of fall into or into a kind of pessimism that then justifies you uh, reconciling yourself to, to the ugliness of the world and you just pursue your own selfish aims and ends, right? I have to pick myself up um, in the midst of my despair, right? And and find language to give to these young people and to myself to, to get up and fight for a more just world. Because mm. I don't have the luxury of despair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't have the luxury of despair. I don't have the benefit of pessimism. You know, I'm not Schopenhauer sitting at my table drinking <laughs> sherry, declaring pessimism as an orientation to the world, you know? So, so I think the lesson Baldwin, one lesson he taught me, right, or one lesson he offers, right, is a kind of resilience in the face of America's ongoing betrayal mm. and how that resilience can be then, then serves as the stuff, the raw stuff for fighting for, for, for uh, a more democratic and more just society. I think the second lesson he offers for me is, is something that sounds a bit cliche, but it's absolutely crucial. There's a line, whenever when I read it, Paul, it brought tears to my eyes. And this is a line in response to uh, a Black Power uh, uh, periodical that had engaged in anti-Semitism, and Baldwin resigned from its board. And in the letter, he says, you know, I want us to imagine ourselves without the need for an enemy. Hmm. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. Can we wow. imagine ourselves? Wow. I don't think I've ever heard that quote. Thank you. Can we imagine ourselves without the need for an enemy? You know, and it just blew my mind. And so there's a sense, there's a cliche that, I mean, it might sound cliche, but the, the messiness of the world is actually a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. And if we could just work on becoming better human beings, more loving in that exacting way in which love calls something out of us and calls us towards towards another, if we could just work harder at being better people, Mm. uh, then we could perhaps build a world that's actually more loving and more just. And so that second lesson is I got to work on me. Mm. And not in this kind of selfish, neoliberal, narcissistic way, Right. But what does it mean to embrace an ethic of love? Right. Right. You know, right. Baldwin says all of us want to want it, but we don't want to live it. You know, we want yeah. love, but we don't live love in some ways. Right. So those two lessons yeah, are those just are two that come, amazing. Come, come to mind. Yeah. It's also like the, the title of that book. Above my head, you know. Again, back to the language of the church. Like, exactly. You know, the, the hymn, and, and and it is like. In some ways, he offers us a lyrical, poetic, prophetic um, witness, which doesn't like doesn't uh, require like it doesn't require a stamp of approval from the church. It's more like the church should seek its stamp. I like you know. I, I feel like it's so it's so helpful the way just listening to you talk about Baldwin is just so helpful. And it also like you know you know we're since we're being honest like. I find enemies very helpful personally, you know, because I, and right now it feels like, you know, I mean, you know, I want to clench my fist all the time because I do feel like people, the rhetoric, people, you know, I feel like they're coming for us, you know, for me, for, you know, in, in, in a different way than you, but like, it feels very existential. And so how do we, how do we recognize that existence? It is. I, I agree. I don't think that's a, I don't think I'm misunderstanding the moment, but, right. um, but I do think the response has to be, has to revolve. I love the way you just said that. Like, how am I going to make me 
figure out how to respond in a way that will actually lead to the world that I'm hoping for, that I'm dreaming of, that I that right. I want to love. So that is that's the kind of work. It's not like, you know, I just need to like, I just need to go to you know Thailand and take another class. You know, <laughs> although I wouldn't mind. Uh, so. Yeah. Up next, more with Princeton University Distinguished Professor Eddie Gloud. You can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. You'll also find links to topics we discussed this week, as well as transcripts and more. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Hey there, curious minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guest is Dr. Eddie Gloud, Jr., author of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Today. You know, one of the things that we're talking about, Baldwin, we're talking about Toni Morrison, we're talking about a corner, we're talking about all these amazing people. I do like, just and, and you, like, I'm looking at you all these amazing books behind you. I would like if if we had time like just we would we would we would learn so much just hearing the titles and where we, that could go. And I just feel like right now, you know, we're we're in like the the moment where people talk about Black History Month and this is really important. And yet at the same time, we have forces coordinated forces across the country who are literally trying to erase black experience. Through right. banning books, through through banning courses, through um, you know uh, creating a boogeyman out of CRT as if they knew that what that was, yeah. and I'm just yeah. you know I I I can imagine um, for those of us who care about democracy, like the attack on books and the 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 desire to erase history and erase um, you know. The, the the primary uh, group of uh, people who are attacked on book censorship are 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 black authors and black experience, some LGBT as well, right. and then and then actually if you look at the religions, there the Jewish and Muslim books together are right. censored all over the country, and and it's it is a crisis of democracy. And librarians and people are feeling so they're under threat. They're under attack. Right. How do you understand like what uh, you know? Not we can either lean on Baldwin or your own expertise. Uh, like what does this moment mean for our democracy, where book bans are again kind of part of our actual conversation in America? Well, I think it's the march of you know you know fascism. You know um, how do we um, how do we produce an electorate, a population uh, that um, is uh, par- parochial, 
in its understanding that doesn't value you know empathy doesn't see the 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 the, the value of pluralism or cosmopolitanism that they that they only affirm uh, the you know their their tribe the people who are like them who are part of their we so i think book banning and this is pretty we we in our history it's it's an echo actually of of a historical moment so we've been living under the under the framework of the lost cause since the mm. collapse of radical reconstruction mm-hmm. and the lost cause sought to tell a story about the civil war about the north so-called carpet baggers about uh, black folk who were being invited into the body politic as being incompetent unable to bear the burdens of citizenship telling the story we know that civil civil war monuments from the confederacy emerged at the very moment in which jim crow is being consolidated so this particular narrative is really critical. And so what's important about that is that at the moment in which the lost cause was being kind of uh, promoted and advanced, they were educating their children. And those children are the same people who grew to be the adults who defended the system in the 1960s and the 1950s. And so what are we talking about now? We're talking about shifting the story to teach our children a very narrow understanding of the American project to not understand its ugly barnacles and underbelly. And instead of understanding that, they want to produce these narrow folks who's, who has, how can, who, who have, how can I put it, a limited sphere of moral concern. Mm, that's a good way to put it. A limited sphere of moral concern. And they are going to grow up to be the adults. Uh, I mean, it, it, all of that and a layer of like, we are going to tell a story about who really counts in this country. Absolutely. And who really, you know, who, you know, it's, it's part of this grand white Christian nationalism narrative about like, who is, who is this country found made for and who is it still really for? And, and, and that's the only story we want to hear. And if the other, if the rest of you want to just kind of cram yourself into that story, Okay, we'll tolerate you. But if you if you want to try to expand the story to the real story and to invite others to learn it with you. I mean, I think that that's like that's the gift of these books that are being banned is that they invite people into a broader understanding of the story. And, you know, (laughs) my, my sense is if you can't handle reading Toni Morrison, you shouldn't go to college. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if that's too difficult for you, then you're not ready actually to be in an environment where inquiry is, is welcome and excellence is appreciated. Uh, you said it so beautifully. I'm not going to try to paraphrase a uh, uh, moral concern, uh, uh, you know, uh, but, but also a narrowing of the story of what counts in America, oh, and that's the the other the other piece that is very frightening to to, to many right now. You know, I think we need to make a distinction between provincialism and parochialism. To be provincial is, you know, the circumstances of one's birth. I grew up in a small town um, in the mountains of, of of West Virginia. I wasn't exposed to much, and you know, it is what it is. Um, it's the condition, circumstances of one's life. But to be parochial is to choose to be narrow. Mm. Is to choose to wear blinders. Right. And part of what we're seeing in this moment, whenever, see, this is the thing, whenever, and this is Ralph Ellison's point, whenever the country is, it gets unsettled about its identity. Whenever we are confronted with the fact that we're not who we say we are, we engage in this tricky magic. And the tricky magic, right, involves consolidating a notion of whiteness by way of demonizing and scapegoating others. Mm. And so there's a reason to ban books right now. There's a reason to talk about immigration right now. There's a reason around voting rights. There's a reason white nationalist, white nationalist Christianity, Christian nationalism is doing what it's doing um, because there's a terror and panic at the heart of it. And part of our challenge is to understand the idolatry right, that gives it life, you see? Because at the heart of it for the white Christian nationalists is idolatry. Mm. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the notion, the idol of whiteness that they have 
that they are worshiping. Right. And here the adjectives, as I, as Al Rabito used to say all the time, the adjectives matter, right? White Christianity, black Christianity, right? White Christianity signals the idol and black Christianity signals the rejection of the idolatry, mm. right? In mm. some significant way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, we're, we're, we're in that moment and it's interesting to imagine how to approach this moment without right. creating an enemy. And, and, and that is like actual work that I'm like <laughs> really involved in. But I think part of it is like, you know, I think honestly, everyone is born provincial. You can be brought up in New York City and you can be the most provincial person in the world because you have no sense of what it's like to be in a rural America or it doesn't matter where you are. It's I, I really like that distinction and I like the invitation from provincial into cosmopolitan, not meaning a city, but into into like, you know, uh, the, the the idea of what it means to intersect with other people, exactly. with interest, with curiosity, with invitation. And I do, you know, my hope, my sincere prayer is that the white Christians who think they're being faithful to their faith and patriotic to their country will recognize this kind of white Christian nationalism as idolatry. And will be invited into another way to express themselves and be a part of a broad community. And I think that yeah. that is part of like the work that that I have to do because my first instinct is to you know immediately call them like you know a Nazis. <laughs> but I but that's not you know I mean and, and sometimes right. actually people are calling themselves Nazis, so that's right. right. And I do think calling some of this fascism is correct. But yeah. I do think figuring out a way to invite those who aren't who aren't trying to be that uh, into a, a broader circle of, uh, or, you know, collective is, is, uh, is part of the work for me right yeah. now, um, especially right. as a white Christian. But I do want to get to your, your sure. next book, which is coming out in April, which is very much, all of this is of a piece, but I am, we need this next book too. I mean, we needed the Baldwin book <laughs> and we still need the Baldwin book, but here's the book that we need next, which is called, We Are the Leaders We Have Been Looking For. Tell me what is the what sparked this need for this book and like what, you know, what can what you know, give us a taste before we all go out and pre-order it, which listeners, I encourage you to do. Uh, uh, what what can we what what can we hopefully learn from this? So, you know, um, these were my Du Bois lectures that I had delivered at Harvard over mm. a decade ago. Wow. And those lectures were very generative. Out of them came three books. Hmm. Democracy in Black, Begin Again, and Very Short Introduction, um, which is uh, the Oxford edition of, of African-American religion, a very short introduction. Hmm. And so on one level, the book kind of is the philosophical scaffolding of my later work. Um, but, you know, the title comes from Ella Baker. Right. We don't need to outsource our responsibility for democracy to political leaders or to prophets uh, who have so-called been called. What we need to do is to understand our power. And so what I do is I offer a pragmatic reading of the prophetic, of the heroic, and of the democratic. I argue that the, I argue that the prophetic is located in each of us, and it's located in our ability to exercise our imagination to see beyond the constraints of now and to imagine what's possible, to engage in that dramatic rehearsal in pursuit of the good. And so these lectures are really about disrupting this idea that democracy, we can outsource our responsibility for democracy to others. That if we're going to save this fragile experiment in this moment, we're gonna have to do it. And if we're gonna do it, Going back to our con earlier conversation with Baldwin, right? We got to become better people. Mm. We have to engage in self-cultivation in the pursuit of justice. What does it mean for me to imagine myself in more, in better terms, to pursue more, to pursue excellences in, a, in an environment that actually blocks the way to that pursuit? So I have to change the circumstances of self-cultivation. Right. Mm. Um, I use this example, Paul, of James W.C. Pennington from the 19th century really quickly. 
you know, he, he, he was that leader right before Douglas emerged. And Pennington wrote a, a slave narrative entitled The Fugitive Blacksmith. And he, there's a passage where he says, Paul, something about slavery that was really, really evil is that it prohibited me from learning. It denied me education. I've spent my entire life trying to make myself more efficient for good. Mm. And I know that it will take lifetime, he intimated, mm. for me to make up what they took from me. So in order to engage in the very work of becoming a better self, you got to change the world that gets in the way. Mm. We have to do both simultaneously. So mm. what does it mean for us to take responsibility for the world, for democracy as such? What does it mean for us to take responsibility for ourselves? We got to change the world as we do both. Mm. We got to do simultaneously. So yeah, yeah. Can you can you remind our our listeners cuz not every, you know, this is on the tip of your tongue. It's not on the tip of most Americans' tongue. It should be who Ella Baker was. And oh, it's just God. really important for to just to lift up that name and not just like reference it, but to go a little bit deeper on reminding us what she did, what she contributed. She's such an important figure. So the book has moves along three figures. So it begins with a reading of King. Uh, then it turns to a reading of Malcolm X in my own life. And then it ends with Miss Baker. Miss Baker was in so many ways at the center of the revolutions of the mid 20th century. She started out as a field secretary for the NAACP. So many of the, the Southern chapters of the NAACP, she helped build. Then she became the first executive secretary of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to help build that organization that King and those ministers um, uh, uh, participated in, like C.T. Vivian and others. Um, but her most important role, for me at least, was in her, the role she played in helping organize the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mm -hmm. Born in Raleigh, North Carolina, she was this organizer, Doc, who understood the power of everyday ordinary folks. So when these kids, these young folks, were engaging in student sit-ins, and it started happening like wildfires across the South, they wanted to organize their efforts. And so she called a conference, uh, well, along with others, uh, and they met um, and they built and they built Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And she kept the traditional civil rights organizers off their backs. Mm. And then she put them right in conversation with those social networks that she had built in the 30s. So Bob Moses wouldn't have known Amzie Moore in Mississippi if it wasn't for Ella Baker. So this woman, not a preacher, but someone in the pews. She doesn't have a preacher-centered understanding of leadership, but a pew-centered mm. understanding of mm. leadership. Mm. Critiquing charismatic preachers who want to get in front of the line and instead wanting to organize everyday ordinary folk to understand that a strong people don't need strong leaders because they're the leaders they've been looking for. Ooh, that's so interesting. And I think, you know, I mean, one of the you know, one of the themes recently that I've been hearing about a little bit more is like, you know, the March on Washington and no women on the pulpit. And right. I think that, you know, when you think about what Ella Baker contributed to, you know, the kind of the mobilization and the awareness and the cap you know capabilities of the resistance movement of that time, you know, it's it's a shame that we don't have I mean. I think many people know about her, and I don't. I don't mean to say it's not. It's, she's not out there, but she's not like that public figure who who everyone turns to and says, "And this one too," you know. I mean, and exactly. and, and I. Th and my hope is like just by spending some time with her, that people begin to think of her in terms of the Malcolm X and the MLK and the Ella Bakers, like that. There, and I think your book is helpful in that way. That's wonderful. That you know, these are the people who we can, you know, really really think of. I, you know, you were saying something earlier that just like, just struck me and I want to underline it. One of my favorite sure. quotes from my great grandfather was Louis Brandeis, the Supreme Court justice. He said, the most important, um, the most important political office is that of the private citizen. Yeah. 
And I think that that gets into a little bit of like what you're talking about. It's like you cannot assume that everyone's going to, anyone is going to do it for you if you have to make it, you be a part of what it means to be a person and be a contributor to our democracy. And we do like right now, we're all a little bit in like, What's who's going to save our democracy? And I, I had a conversation with Jamie Raskin, who's the the who's who's been right. really wonderful, and he's also a constitutional law professor. And exactly. I said, you know, it's clear the court isn't going to save us. And he said, Paul, the court has never saved us. They have always been reactionary. They had like two decades where they kind of did the right thing. They have never saved us. They never will save us. It's up to us to say, I was like, okay, school me, school me, school me. <laughs> well, you know, you, you kind of like these institutions that you're hoping are going to come to our rescue in this moment. And it, it's it's going to have to be kind of what you're talking about, this this idea of the each of us having a responsibility to do that personal work, which has been a through line of this conversation. It's really like, it feels like we you're you're you you have this great wisdom i'm looking forward to you going out and and preaching the good word or professing the good word however you do that um but there is a through line here about um about how we how we understand ourselves uh as as part of the democracy like a necessary part of the democracy every one absolutely. of us for the last 40 years we have been living under an economic system that has presumed that citizenship isn't the most important thing. In fact, it has transformed citizenship into this idea that you and I are individuals in pursuit of our own aims and ends and competition and rivalry with each other. And you could describe that as neoliberalism or Reaganism or Thatcherism or whatever. And what has happened because we are all selfishly in pursuit of our own aims and ends, there's been an evisceration of the public good. No real sense of what is the social compact? What are my obligations to you? What are my ob- your obligations to me? What are my obligations to the society as such? Right. And part of what I'm trying to insist upon is that if this, if democracy is to survive, we got to become the kinds of people democracies require. Mm. Mm. Um, and selfish, selfish folk who who opt out of right any notion, robust notion of the public good and public responsibility, they they signal the doom of democracy. And remember, Paul, we've only been a genuinely multiracial democracy since 1965. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I will say, like, just to, you know, to to kind of take one more step, there is an active effort at dissembling what is the public good of libraries, of public schools. All that is being starved, is being attacked. It is intentional. These are public areas that are under attack so that we don't have these institutions that that offer a public good. And, you know... And and so it's it's not only are not only are we um, invited to to invest only in ourselves, but we're not even we're we're it's being attacked the very idea of places where we might learn about one another, where we might Absolutely. come together, where we might support one another. Absolutely, and you know That's, this goes back to the inside of your great great grandfather, right? When we talk about what the social gospel was trying to respond to, what does it mean to reduce human beings? Right. To the mere pursuit of material ends and aims when, you know, corporate money overdetermines everything, everything of value is reduced to right dollars or tokens or however we want to describe it. So if we are to save this thing, it's not Biden that's going to save it. It's not Trump who's going to save it. It's not Gavin Newsom or any politician. It's not the leader of Sojourners or the leader, you or me, it's us. Mm -hmm. We have to do this. And, and 2024 uh, is, is a time in which uh, uh, a time that is for us. It is a time that, uh, you know, was made for you and me. So let's get busy. Let's get to work. Let's get busy. Listen, I just want to spend just one second with this, uh, 
tweet that you did, uh, you know, it says Trumpism reminds me of something Ralph Ellison warned about, that the nation might well succumb to the moral slobism that has always threatened its existence from within. And I have to say that is a new quote to me, moral slobism. That just captures something, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It does. And this is in the context of an essay that, 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 that Ellison published April of 1970 in Time magazine entitled, What Would America Be Like Without Blacks? Mm. And what he was trying to do was to deal with this desire to rid the country of the problem of race by getting rid of black people. Mm. And then the flip side of that was the kind of black nationalism of the period that wanted to engage in separation. And Ellison is like, yo, to understand the American project, right, is to is to come face to face with the cultural contributions of these. Deep down, America is black, whether they want to admit it or not. Mm, right? This mm. is the place. Its language swings because of our presence, because of the presence of different groups. Its sound swings because of our presence culturally, right? And so Ellison is saying though. And this is so this is what's so key about it is that there is this propensity for a kind of selfish regard Mm. that I don't have a responsibility to anyone but myself Mm. and those who I claim to love. And what else is that but a moral slot? Right? Because Ellison believes he believes that democracy, Paul, understood. If we understand it at its root, democracy at its best is nothing but a disinterested form of love. Whew. Wow. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's man, fantastic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so what he means by that is really key, right? So if we organize a society where we're going to affirm the dignity and standing of every everyday ordinary folk, and that society reflects a certain commitments with certain, a certain set of commitments whereby we're going to allow, we're going to create the conditions where folk can not only dream, but to make those dreams a reality, whether we know them or not. Mm-hmm. What else is that? Whether we wow. love where we're they're in our intimate space or not, we're going to love them into becoming who God has called them to be. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. What else is democracy but a disinterested form of love? It feels like we've gotten we've gotten some some just beautiful wisdom on like not only the out there, but the in here, uh, you know, and 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 what like what what morality means in this moment right. when right. a lot of people throw around the idea of moral. Um, but what do we mean by moral? It just is so helpful. I. I end this show with asking everybody sure. to identify something that gives them hope. Someone, something. What gives you hope right now? Eddie Gloud. You know, this is a question that I, I confronted in writing Begin Again. Um, because, I, you know, Baldwin was asking so much of me that I thought I was going to lose everything. So I was drinking too much, Johnny, you know, too much Jameson, Irish whiskey and the like. Um, grappling with what he was asking of me. And there was this moment in Istanbul when a reporter from Ebony asked him this question. And he was in Istanbul after the assassination of Dr. King. He had a love affair, had fallen apart. He had just tried to commit suicide. Um, He was drinking, had his Johnny Walker black and a cigarette in hand. And the reporter says, well, what about hope? And Baldwin responded with this big gap-toothed grin, hope is invented every day. So what is to answer your question? I've now been grappling with what he means by what, what, you know, if, you know, what is my hope? And Baldwin's hope is invented every day. If you have to invent hope every day, Paul, you have to beat back despair every day. So if you have to invent hope every day, that means you're fighting despair every day. So I got to figure out how to swing my feet off the bed and plant them on the floor and get up so my hope is invested in the miracle that human beings can be i'm always hopeful not optimistic hopeful that human beings will do something miraculous in the midst of the darkness if i don't have faith in us um 
an abiding thing in us, then I'm lost. So where do I find hope? I find hope in, in, in the unexpected places where human beings are doing some things that you never could imagine they could do. And that becomes the seed, the ground for a different kind of way of being in the world. So my hope is in us. Hmm. Always. Dr. Eddie S. Gloud Jr. is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor at Princeton University and the former chair of the Department of African American Studies there. He is also the former president of the American Academy of Religion. He is the author of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Today. And in April, this is available for pre-order now. Everyone, listeners, please get this book. It's called We Are the Leaders We Have Been Looking For. Dr. Gloud, thank you so much for being on The State of Belief. It has been a pleasure. It has been my blessing. Thank you so much, Paul. Please be sure to subscribe to The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We need your help to keep making the state of belief. Become a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And share what you're getting out of this show with the people in your networks. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going. Find us on Facebook and Instagram with the handle at stateofbelief. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for my exclusive interview with filmmakers Rob Reiner and Dan Partland their groundbreaking documentary on Christian nationalism, why it's so attractive to some Americans, the threat it poses to democracy itself, and ideas for resisting this ideology are all beautifully presented in God and Country, which opens in theaters nationwide on February 16th. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. <laughs>